And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg, and I am so happy to be reconnecting today for the first time in a while with Kenosha's own John Hembrock, the creator of the wonderful comic strip The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee. And this is a nationally syndicated comic strip that is uh, just now entering its 15th year of national syndication. So it's uh, a marvelous landmark, and uh, it's a great opportunity for us to reconnect with John Hambrock and to be reminded of, first of all, kind of the interesting uh, genesis of this comic strip and the patience which John Hambrock had to dis- display as well as perseverance and uh, how he was able ultimately to land what so many uh, cartoonists aspire to national syndication. And he has, of course, fans all across the country, including, of course, plenty of Kenosha news readers who enjoy this comic strip on a daily basis. And uh, so we have John Hambrock uh, with us uh, over the telephone uh, to talk about the last 15 years and about the wonderful adventure tied up in his comic strip, uh, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee. John Hambrock, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Well, Greg, I'm really, really thrilled to be back with you. I am trying to remember, I thought this morning, when the last time uh, I was on your show, and I want to say it was at least six years ago, probably during the the, the Cartoon Festival, I think. I, I'm guessing that, yeah. And uh, yeah. It is, time flies when you're having fun, but I'm really glad that we can be uh, speaking today and uh, helping to uh, celebrate this this anniversary for you. Uh, because we've talked a number of times uh, about uh, the genesis of, of the comic strip, uh, we probably don't have to go over that uh, in quite the detail that we sometimes have, but there are probably plenty of people listening to us right now who uh, really don't know too much about uh, the backstory. so we better touch on it at least a, a little bit. Uh, first of all, when was it that you first got the notion of trying to create a comic strip? I mean, does this go back many, many, many years? Um, probably, I want to say 1990. I want to probably in that range. I mean, it's interesting. I married I married Ann. You know, my wife Ann Morris Hambrock, uh, who was a big comics fan, and I grew up not really reading comics at all i was not into comics i wasn't into superheroes i wasn't into any of that i didn't draw them i didn't do anything well i married ann and uh she was really into comics and she sort of drugged me into this world of cartoon art and comics and humor and so i started reading it and i want to say it was about 1989 or 1990 when i i thought you know this might actually be something uh that i could do and it literally happened, I tell this to people, I was walking to the train, I worked in Chicago, downtown, and I was walking to the train one night, and I was waiting at the corner to cross the street, and I had this this flash of brilliance in my head, hey, try doing a comic strip. And so I went home and I told Ann, um, and she said, great, you know, let's, let's see where you can go with that. Uh, and that's kind of where it started. But it's interesting, because when you're thinking about doing a comic, you have no idea where to begin. Uh, I don't think many people start out having this very clear idea of what they want to do. It's sort of a general, I'd like to do this, but, you know, where do I start? As I recall, recall, you had kind of different ideas and one that 
didn't work and one that sort of did and one that was maybe not timed right or or a pretty good idea, but somebody else, it turns out, was already doing it. I mean, uh, it, it was so interesting to kind of hear about that because it, it makes you realize that uh, a great idea for a comic strip does not just sort of magically arrive at the right time and in the right place. I mean, in a sense, a whole lot of stars have to align before something like the launch of a nationally syndicated comic strip is is really possible. That is so true. And and the the the, the first one I did was actually I worked on it with Anne. We did it together. We wrote it together. I did all the art, and it was based on it was sort of political, social, and it had uh, a cast of animals living. I was called Second Nature was the name of the comic. And, you know, I sent it off to, to the syndicates, and they, they responded very favorably. Um, in fact, one of the editors called me right off the bat and said, I really like this. This is great stuff. Um, I found out later that there was a comic that had just been launched that I hadn't even known about called Over the Hedge, uh, which we all know. Uh, and, of course, in this business, if you've got something very unique like that, you know, putting two or three of them out there is, is really not something that they're interested in doing. They're always looking for unique ideas. So uh, my timing was off on that one. So, yeah, that was a, that was a launch and a failure, but um, I shouldn't call it a failure. I mean, it was a great comic, but um, it didn't lead to anything big. So that it's, was number one. <laughs> hmm. At some point in our conversations, I remember you talking about what a crowded field we're talking about in terms of those aspiring to do what you are managing to do with the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. I mean, so there are all kinds of pretenders, uh, but there are very, very few opportunities that are ultimately available. And and certainly that was the case uh, when all of this started for you. Just give us a sense of sort of the astronomical odds that were against you in a sense as you began this quest and whether or not you would have begun it in the first place if you had fully realized that. Or did you know right from the start that this was always going to be in a sense uh, a, a long shot or a, 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 a tough feat to achieve? You know, interesting, I went into this completely blind, Greg. I had no idea. If I'd have known um, the odds, and, and I think the statistics at the time were there were, you know, they've received between seven and 9,000 submissions for comics a year, and they pick two, maybe, you know, one or two. So uh, that's, that's a pretty staggering odds. I think my editor told me at one time that my chances of becoming an NFL football player were probably... Uh, better than getting syndicated with a comic. Um, but again, this was back in the early 2000s. Things have changed now. They're not launching a lot of new material. Um, but yeah, it's it's very, very difficult to break in uh, to the field. And uh, I just felt fortunate that I was able to do it. But again, like you said, if I had known up front, you know, your odds are pretty, pretty against you, I don't know that I would have pursued it. I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. So as you went through that kind of fine-tuning process of trying to, to figure out different possibilities, different things to offer to the world, what was that process like? And was this something that you were working on on a nearly daily basis, or would you kind of set the whole comic strip thing aside for maybe days or weeks, even months at a time, and then pick it up again? I mean, what, what was that process like? 
in, in the years that ultimately led up to the launching of the brilliant mind of Edison Lee? Well, at times it was agonizing, okay? Um, agonizing in the sense that, that I would lie there at night awake and just... You come up with an idea, and it's almost there. And you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. If anybody out there is a creator, you know what I'm talking about exactly. It's that I've got a great idea. It's almost there, but it's not there. It's on the tip of your tongue kind of thing. And you know, I spent months uh, working on specific ideas for certain things, and, and, and you sort of try to work your way through it, coming up with with. Because it's, it's, it's with me anyway. When I when I'm writing, I don't come up with a lot of just already formed ideas that just pop in my head. It's usually a process that you have to walk yourself through uh, to come up with a final. Um, and then, of course, I would take months and months, and I would do nothing. You know, I'd work in fits and spurts. I'd go six months and really hit a project hard, and then send it off. And if it didn't get any response, I would take maybe six months or a year and regroup and sort of retool and and then get back to it. So. Um, it just goes where your mind wanders, and, and you you come up with what you come up with, and and hope that it works. Hmm. We're speaking with John Hambrock, celebrating the anniversary of the uh, launch of his wonderful comic strip called "The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee." So it is just now beginning its fifteenth year of national syndication. Uh, so tell us more about the formulation of this idea for the brilliant mind of Edison Lee and uh, what sorts of, of uh, what sorts of influences were a, a part of your thinking as you kind of shaped who these characters might be and, and what the scenario would be? Well, it's funny. Edison was a character, he was a small character in an original strip that I had done um, uh, about a father and a son living together, uh, a, like a grandfather and a father living together, and they had a grandson. And that was the character of Edison, and he he uh, was just sort of a, a, a secondary character. And then around 2000, I guess, um, I revisited this little boy I had in this strip, and um, the name Edison is actually interesting. I was actually at a neighbor's house at a book sale he had, and I looked on the shelf, and he had a book titled um, Edison. That's all it said. It was a book about Thomas Edison. And so I grabbed it, and I brought it home, and I read it through front to back, and I thought, that's a really interesting guy. And so that's sort of the how I got the name Edison for the comic or the character. And then my oldest son is also a very bright uh scientific engineering kind of kid and so I also based the character on on him so it was around 1999 around 2000 that I started really working on this new character called Edison and it's funny because the original comic I did with Edison he was just an average boy who liked to build things and um, just do all kinds of fun interesting um, scientific projects and Nobody responded. It didn't, you know, it just, I got crickets. I got form letters from syndicates and everything else. And it's like, no, it's just not something we're looking for. But then something interesting happened. We had the 2000 election, which, you know, coming off the election right now, it's sort of interesting to talk about this again. And we were just uh, all rolled up in the politics of the time. And, of course, it affected me because I'm a political junkie anyway. And so I started rolling all of these uh, social and political thoughts into the mind of this 10-year-old boy. And I started writing like that. 
and very uncensored, I have to say. I mean, some of the stuff I wrote I couldn't print in newspapers right now, but at the time it was very edgy, I thought, and it was uh, provocative. And I sent those off, and oh, boy, the fireworks. <laughs> I had hit on something finally um, because it was coming from truly within me. It was my true inner voice. And at that time, uh, I finally felt that I had come up with something that really represented what was going on inside of me. And as a writer, that's very important. You write from your heart, and um, it works. And then from there on, uh, uh, I got noticed by King Feature Syndicate, and they called me and offered me offered me a deal. Mm. So, yeah. Fabulous. When they offered you the deal, was it in a sense with no strings attached? Or, uh, I mean, did the deal in, in, in effect say, we love this, start doing this? Or was it, we love this, however... Uh, we would love it even more if you do this and this and this. I, I, I don't remember from our past conversations uh, if I uh, ever asked you about that. Well, it's funny you say that because they, they say, oh, we love this. We love this. Oh, but uh, we don't like the way the character is drawn and we don't like the name of the comic, which at the time I, it was called Crumb. Hmm. And I could see that now because uh, of Robert Crumb. He was a big name and they were like, we, you can't. You can't take his name, even though you're not copying him. But the, originally, the character was drawn in a really odd sort of way. He was kind of a, a, a weird-looking kid. He looked like a grown-up with a comb-over sort of a thing, and, and they really did not like that character at all. And so, you know, of course, I had this chance, and I you know, said, hey, yeah, sure, I can redraw that. Uh, what do you want? I will do it. And um, one of the things I regret was the originally, originally the comic had... Uh, uh, Edison had a younger brother named Harley, and they they pulled the plug on him for some reason. They wanted him to be an only child, uh, and you got to remember when you're doing a comic like this, um, the uh, a lot of people have uh, their say in how things go. The salespeople do. The salespeople have to look at it and go, "Can I sell this?" Uh, the editorial board has to look at it and said, "You know, is this something that we can, you know, in good conscience, put out there in newspapers?" So. Um, there are all those considerations when they're launching a comic. So they do have some say-so. And the amount of pushback you can give is, is up to you. At one point, they wanted me to drop the glasses on Edison. And, you know, uh, I looked at Ann, and she said, no way. And, and I said, I'll give it a try. And so for a couple of weeks, I, I drew the comic without glasses. And it was a disaster. It didn't work. His whole character had changed. And so I went back to my editor a couple weeks later, and I said, can, can you have his glasses back because it's just not working? And he said, yeah, sure, whatever. Hmm. <laughs> so, Do you recall why they wanted Edison not to have glasses? What it, have was it no for any idea. particular reason? I, I have no idea. Um, somebody just said it. You know, again, this is all, this is all by committee. These are all people that, that have their... Um, you know, there's a lot on the line here. Right. Uh, it, it costs about $200,000, I found this out much later, to launch a feature. And I don't know where they get that figure. I mean, there's a lot of printing. There's a lot of, a lot of advertising and stuff. So they have a lot at stake, and they want to make sure they hit it right when they, 
uh, come out of the gate. Right. So I suppose in the same way that we hear so much in the television world about the suits, <laughs> those yes. network folks who uh, are there with their clipboards and so on, uh, sometimes intruding. Uh, not always. I mean, I think in some cases uh, uh, certain creative projects are allowed to uh, to operate with a fair amount of autonomy, but I think that's pretty rare. And it sounds like in the world of comic strips as well, uh, there are people who are advising you uh, to prob- with probably varying degrees of directness and firmness on how you can do what you're doing even better. Yes, that's exactly how it goes. Um, and it's unfortunate that it has to be that way because I've heard of a lot of projects that you know start out with a bang and died with a whimper because uh, too many people got involved and diluted it to the point. Mm. Um, where I, it just didn't function anymore as, yeah. a, as a creative property. Hmm. When you were in the process of launching this, uh, of, of, of trying to sell the idea uh, for syndication, uh, how much did you have to present to them? Was it a certain number of comic strips? And, and what kind of array were you supposed to create? I mean, was this, in a sense, a, a, an opportunity to try to demonstrate just how far and wide this strip could go? I mean, what was that actual presentation like? What did you have to show uh, the syndicate in order to ultimately close this deal? Well, they have very strict guidelines, which I learned early on not to not to, not to deviate from, and I'll explain in a second. Yeah, all they require really are uh, four weeks of samples um, and uh, some character sheets and sort of an outline of where you think uh, the strip is going. But one, one year, probably about the second time I ever submitted, I thought, oh, well, you know, forget the 8 and a half by 11 sheets in an envelope. Um, I'm going to go... You know, I worked at an agency in Chicago. Our, 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 my job was marketing and, and advertising and graphics. So I made this giant box. It was about maybe 18 inches by 12 inches by about 2 inches thick. And it was covered in graph. It had the comic all over it. And it had uh, compartments inside. And, and it, was, it was a beautiful, beautiful presentation. And I, and I sent it off, uh, shipped it off to the syndicates. And, and, and I, King Features didn't get back to me for the longest time and I finally called to find out where we were in the process with this presentation and the editor got on the phone Jay Kennedy at the time and he he was the one reviewing it and he said oh yeah please don't ever ever send me anything like that again my office is like eight by ten feet I have no room for this stuff (laughs) (laughs) he sort of scolded me on on going a little over the top um but it's it's very it's very simple. Just we want to see your work. We don't need to see anything else. We just want to know what the product is, where you're headed, um, and we'll determine from there if we can you know if we can see any potential. When you were at this point of submitting uh, what became the brilliant mind of Edison Lee, did you have any reason to be optimistic, uh, given the fact that there had been past attempts that had not come to fruition. Uh, Did you have a sense that this was going to be different and that Edison Lee was going to be your ticket to success? Or were you, in a sense, completely shocked 
uh, when the offer came? I think about that point, I was I was pretty about ready to give it up. Actually, um, I felt this was my strongest shot, and I had sent it off. Here's how that worked. I, I got lucky because of a death in the family of a, of, and this is a horrible thing to say, but uh, the, the head the head editor at King Features at the time was his name was Jay Kennedy and. I'd sent it to Jay, and I'd got to know him pretty well at this point because he and I were talking on the phone, and he loved my work. He just couldn't find a place for it. Well, I sent it to Jay, and he hadn't gotten back to me for the longest time. And um, it turns out later that he had taken six weeks off because his wife had died, and he had put his deputy editor in charge. Well, his deputy editor looked at my comic and said, yes, absolutely, I'm going with this one. And I remember the day I was in my office, uh, is it like January 5th or something, and I get this caller ID that says Hearst Entertainment. And I'm thinking, oh, it's somebody selling magazines or something. But something made me pick it up, and he introduced himself. Yeah, I'm Brendan Burford. I'm with King Features, you know, and we want to talk about syndicating your comic. And, wow, boom, you could have knocked me over. Uh, at that point, um, you know, that was the time. That was what it took him to get me on board. Hmm. We're speaking with John Hambrock, and uh, we're talking with him on the morning show in celebration of his comic strip, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, uh, entering its 15th year of national syndication. As you've already touched on, one of the ways in which this comic strip is a reflection of who you are and what you are interested in is the fact that young 10-year-old Edison Lee is not only... Uh, a real science geek. I mean, almost almost like a miniature version of Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory. Uh, but that on top of that, he has this acute awareness of and appreciation for uh, sort of the political realities of the world in which we live. It's such an interesting combination. Um, what do you think about when you uh, allow the sort of the political element into this comic strip? And um, what sorts of things do you sort of weigh in your mind uh, in terms of what is going to feel right, what's going to work well, and uh, what will be <laughs> well received by the readers? Well, I'm very careful. I'm very careful about what I choose. Um, and it's interesting. I, you'll notice I never really mention anybody in reality in in my comic. I, right. I have a character called the Senator Ottoman, and I sort of use him as a reflection of the whole process in general. And I'm able to roll up all my uh, political commentary into this character. And I get a lot of mail. I get uh, people that write. I just got a guy that wrote me um, about a month ago about a Sunday that I ran and. Um, there was nothing political in it, yet he accused me of throwing politics into the comics page. So hmm. uh, it, it touches a lot of people in different ways, and some of them get really riled up and angry about it, and others, it fires them up, and they're like, yeah, you go, you know. Uh, most of the time when I do a strip that deals with politics, those are the ones that get the most comments. And if you go online and you look at threads, Oftentimes they'll comment on the comic for one or two comments, and then 
they all go after each other, <laughs> you know, mm. for 50 or 60 comments in a thread. Um, that's why that's why King Features picked me. So I really have to sort of stick with that um, with that angle on the comic. Um, and and like right now, going on the last three or four weeks, I haven't really done much at all because I write four and five weeks ahead. So not knowing where we're headed into an election, it's very difficult to write sort of um, post-election comics because you you have no idea where we're going to be at this point. Mm. So, uh, in terms of of crafting strips that would comment very specifically on, for instance, uh, the results of this current election or the ways yeah. in which the incumbent president is contesting those results, uh, it doesn't make sense for you to try to fold that into your comic strip, given the fact that those strips won't see the light of day for maybe months to come. Yeah, I'm four weeks on my deadline. Um, people like Gary Trudeau could work two or three days. <laughs> so that's why Doonesbury would be uh, so topical, because he could just throw stuff out there and they would run it you know, two or three days out. I don't have that luxury. So, so yes, I have to be very careful. Um, that's why I tend to, my, my topics on politics tend to be more broad uh, and not deal with really anything specific just more generalized trends that are going on in politics. And um, about a month or six weeks ago, I ran a whole bunch of uh, political editorial cartoons. Uh, the senator was on Meet the Press, and I did a lot of those because there was just a lot to say at the time. And people really like those. But then I pull back, and I'll do something that's very generic and simple um, and it just sort of wanders all over the place, and that doesn't seem to bother readers. They seem to accept it just the way it is. Hmm. I want to talk about a, a few of the other characters that are part of this world that you have created with the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. I think one of the most intriguing choices that you've made in who, is in who Edison's parents are, and in particular, uh, Edison Lee's father, and what he does for a living and so on. Uh, tell our listeners about Edison Lee's parents and why you crafted those characters the way you did. Well, they, they started off being more than I think they've actually turned into. Uh, originally, the mom, was a, she was a substitute teacher. She was an educator. And the dad, he's just a blue-collar guy. I don't really, I've never said where he works or what he does. Just, he's just one of those worker guys that comes home, goes to work, comes home. Um, I seem to the, recall that we know that he's maybe wor works in a union, or I mean, is yeah. is a member of a union. So uh, that gives us, you know, kind of a general sense of of what he does, if not real specifically. Yes, yes, and it's interesting that the parents had more of a role when I started than they do now. Sort of the grandfather has kind of taken over. Mm -hmm. um, the parents are just sort of, they're just sort of a sounding board. They're sort of a, a uh, the straight man in the comic. And I don't treat them really any more than that. I, they're, they're very one-dimensional. Um, and it's very interesting because early on I, I could have taken them in the opposite direction. I thought about developing the mother into something really a lot more than she turned out uh, being because I just, I couldn't wrap my head around who she was and I didn't really give it any thought and didn't give it any energy into into developing them any more than 
than I did. Um, and I'm not sure that would have added anything to the comic. Right. In a, in a sense, it's, it, it would perhaps crowd things a bit. Uh, and, and, and there are probably certain comic strips where it's almost a little too crowded or a little too busy. There is something to be said for the relative simplicity of the scenario that you've created. Exactly, and that, that was sort of the direction I wanted to, to, uh, to wind up in, um, just because of that. I, you know, look at a strip like I brought up Doonesbury earlier. I mean, my gosh, there are 40-something, it's a cast of 40-something characters in that comic. And that's just a deep, deep well to draw from. And sometimes I wish I had that, but then other times it's, it's just, no. I'm, I'm very comfortable in the 15 years uh, where this has landed. And I'm just going to kind of stay this course, I think, until until it runs its course. <laughs> right. So you're more of a Charles Schultz at heart than a Gary Trudeau in terms of just the way you are maybe creatively yeah. wired. Yeah, and I thought about introducing new characters, and I'm considering it. I'm considering introducing a new character, uh, a male woman, a woman that delivers the mail. Um, about three years ago, I introduced a character. His name is Ernest. He's a little boy that delivers newspapers. Uh, and I introduced, uh, interesting enough, I introduced a reporter four years ago to the comic. And uh, this was after, right after the 2016 election. And I did a lot of great strips on the reporter with all the fake news and everything. And I sort of let him go because I couldn't come up with much uh, that I could relate to with this reporter. But again, he's a character that I can draw on if I need to later on. Let's talk about the grandfather. You've already mentioned the fact that he is a little more central to uh to events than he than he once was, and uh, he is a hilarious character in part because he is a little bit of a bumbler and so on, and uh, is such an interesting counterpoint to who Edison Lee is. Tell us more about how you shaped that character and and why you think it's worked to have him be right in the thick of things more and more. <laughs> He's the character that everybody loves more than anybody else. It's interesting. Um, and uh, funny enough, going back to the beginning, that was one of the characters that, that they thought that I should cut, and I fought very hard to keep him. Uh, because I thought the, character, I thought the comic needed, needed that voice, needed that older voice. And people ask, oh, who do you, where do you get the idea for Orville? Where do you get his, his thoughts and ideas? And I say, he comes from me. Believe it or not, uh, he's a direct reflection of me in many, many ways. Um, I think he adds a tremendous amount of humor to the comic. Uh, and I have to be careful because he's so easy to write for that I could just make a comic about him five days a week, six days a week. And I have to avoid that temptation. But uh, he developed over the years. He, he, he's, uh, he's very, I'm very comfortable with where he is. He's clueless, um, but not stupid. He's not. He doesn't have Alzheimer's. He doesn't have dementia. He's just a character that bumbles through life and somehow manages to make it. I did a comic a few years ago, a while ago, where he went on Price is Right, <laughs> you know, and he he lost. Um, but he's sort of a here's a good way of putting it. He's sort of a Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, he he does all these things in life. I did one series that was like a five-week series where he was working at a grocery store and he wound up being the CEO of the company <laughs> just because of how he bagged the groceries. It, 
it just was a hilarious uh, one thing after another after another that led to this uh, rise in this corporation. And you know, pretty soon he was running the company without even knowing what he was doing. Huh. So those are fun. I yeah. love doing that. <laughs> so take us inside the creative process as you craft actual strips. Uh, first of all, typically, how many are you creating? Uh, at one time, I mean, in terms of a given surge of comic strips that you are responsible for creating, what kind of time frame are we talking about? And and what is the creative process like uh, by which that blank canvas in front of you ultimately uh, becomes a comic strip? Um, well, I do seven a week. Yeah, I have to. Uh and I work about four weeks ahead on my dailies and, and six weeks on Sundays. I'm supposed to be a lot more than that, but I, I don't, and they don't push back on that. But my writing time, it's interesting, my writing time starts in the morning, and I have this little sliver of a window that I can really, my head is just clear as a bell. If I get up at 5 and write, that's perfect, until about 7 or 8, and then then life creeps in and your mind wanders and everything's everything's done at that point. So I try to write in the morning, and um, sometimes I can come up with a week's worth of material in, in two hours. Sometimes it might take three days. There's just no knowing. So it's really hard to plan your life around this comic because you just have no idea what's going to come when and how you're going to make adjustments You know, to times when you're not able to write anything at all. And I've been very lucky. I've had very few instances, even in the last 10 years, where I've just hit that brick wall where nothing comes. Because, how you know, it's really interesting, the process. These characters, they live in your head. They're there all the time. They're like crazy relatives that just refuse to move out. And you wake up in the morning, and they're there. You go to bed at night, and they're there. And so when you sit up, get up in the morning to write, you can call on any number of them. I'll call on the grandfather, and what's he doing today? And... I know them so well that they pretty much write themselves. You just say, what would he say in this situation? Oh, here's what he would do. And it gets a lot easier as you, you know, get farther along in, in, in the process over the years. When I started out all those years ago, oh my, I thought, how am I ever going to do 365 of these a year? It just seemed like an insurmountable task. But very early on, you learn that, that it's not as difficult as you think it is you just roll with it and let the characters speak for themselves you've already mentioned the fact that your wife Anne was uh, going into all of this much more of a connoisseur of comic strips or sequential art as they're sometimes called uh, m- more than you were and uh, she has a lot uh, to do with the fact that you ever entered this arena in the first place but beyond that I know that she has played a really significant role over the years uh, in, in, in this strip, in sustaining it, and being, uh, at, at least at certain points in time, a, a very much a hands-on partner. Uh, tell us the role that she has played, or roles that she has played with the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. Well, again, she's the one that drug me into it. <laughs> I shouldn't say drug me into it. She uh, inspired me to, t- to take it on. Um, but she's been helpful all along with the early comics. Like I said, we collaborated on, on the first one that we did, and we came up with some great stuff. Uh, she colors every single Edison comic that's being done. 
Um, the syndicate offers to do that, but my stuff is so unique that I don't trust anybody but Anne to do the color on all these comics. So that's her job. She's a good editor. She's uh, helps me write. She just does any number of things that I would need um, that she gladly and willingly steps up to uh, help when I need her the most. I'll send. I'll, I'll give her stuff, and it's funny. If I'm not sure about a comic and I look at it and I think, oh, this, this isn't going to fly, and I give it to her, and she'll read it, and she, if I hear a, hmm, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay, that one's done. <laughs> In a good way. I don't way show or... her everything, but I'll sh- I show her the ones that I'm not sure about, and I I almost am positive when I give it to her that I, the response that I'm going to get. But I have to try. Hmm. <laughs> Do you feel like when you are crafting comic strips that you are crafting them to amuse yourself? I mean, that is it enough that you think a comic strip is funny, or do you have to, in a sense, step beyond? your own amusement, and and think about whether or not a fair number of people out in the world are going to also find this funny. Or is that just too complicated? And it, it, does it make sense for you to just create comic strips that you yourself think are funny? Is that enough? Uh, that is enough. Uh, I mean, I, I'm always worried about what readers think, probably more than I should be. My editor told me early on that um, you don't have to hit, you don't have to bat a thousand on this stuff. You really don't. Um, but again, I don't phone it in either. I, if I have something I really don't like, I'm not going to run it. Even if I'm on deadline and I'm up against it, uh, I'm just not going to run it. Uh, but I write for me more than than I do anybody. If I if I laugh uh, at something I've written, then 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 I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready to go with it. Um, but I'm not going to put anything out there that's, that's not something that I personally would, would think is, is the quality that I would expect out of this comic. So I maybe put more into it than I should. That's just my nature, though, is to just give it the best I can no matter what. In addition to the fun that you have had creating The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee and giving it to the world over these past 15 years, you have also had the tremendous pleasure of becoming part of this world and uh, meeting so many of your fellow cartoonists and uh, and even, of course, uh, on a number of occasions, bringing some of them uh, here to southeastern Wisconsin with the cartooning festival that you and your wife uh, created and, and, and coordinated and that I know a lot of us are hoping will someday see the light of day again. Um, just talk for a moment about the community of cartoonists that, that you are part of and, uh, and maybe some of the most memorable friendships or collaborations that have, uh, that have been a part of your life uh, since the emergence of Edison Lee. Yeah, that's been the fun part of it. I, I, um, I've been a member of the National Cartoonist Society for, I think, 12 years now. And I'm actually, I've been in the board of directors of the, I'm the vice president of it right now for the last eight years. Uh, we're all a very tight-knit family, all of us. Every cartoonist, you, you open a paper and you know those are all those are all friends those are all we all understand each other 
and it's sort of like I understand with Hollywood. You know, actors, most of them know each other. They all, they all uh, commiserate. They they get together. They 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 talk about you know, the industry and all of that. And that's been one of the biggest benefits I think of doing this comic is getting to know all of these great cartoonists, people that I you know uh, read. Um, you know, when I was working in Chicago in newspapers and stuff, and now now they're friends. Uh, it's just sort of mind-boggling. And yes, we have had a number of them here in in Kenosha. We've had some some great people. We had Jeff Keen come. We had you know Stephen Pastis who does pearls. Uh, we had a lot of people here that um, have come to Kenosha just because uh, we invited them and because they like meeting with 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 uh, their readers and their fans. Hmm. So how does one keep this fresh over the course of 15 long years? Or when it comes to the cartooning business, is 15 years of <laughs> uh, just a drop in the bucket? I mean, once you're rolling, is, it, is this a, a, an easy thing or a fairly simple thing to sustain? I, you know, in, in my situation, being topical, it makes it a lot easier. If, if I had just come up with a, a comic about a, a giraffe that you know plays a banjo, uh, I think I'd run out of material after a while. But I'm able to um, to tap on things going around, you know, going on in the world, um, and it's those current events that really keep me rolling. Uh, you know, five years ago, I may have been I may have been ready to call it in. I was getting tired at that point, but but the dead, you know, because the deadlines are brutal. They they, they never stop. Um, I've had to work on comics, you know, with relatives in the hospital and, you know, deaths in the family and all that. And and you have to work around those things, you know, because there's no, unless you can get really far ahead, which I'm not capable of doing, um, you just have to make sure the content is delivered on time every single week. And that wears you down. But also I think it's offset by this, this sheer joy and the, the satisfaction I get out of writing and creating it brings out something in me that I find so fulfilling that I, I can't imagine ever, ever giving it up. And I've, I've thought about what would I do if I didn't have this hanging over me every single day of every week. I don't know, Greg, I'd, I'd probably lose my mind. <laughs> how, do you, how do you divorce yourself from these characters that have been living inside your head all these years? It's, it's sort of a scary thought. I, I had I had never stopped to think about that that uh, that they in a sense are a part of you, and uh, and and even beyond the obvious ways in which that that is true. Uh, so we hope this is something that can go on for a long, long time. Uh, Fifteen years is interesting in this business, given the fact that I mean you you came along at a time when newspapers were already. Uh, facing considerable struggles of, of 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 every kind, and of course those struggles are are only more acute today. In, in what way is this a different world for comic strips in terms of the way they are distributed and shared with the world? And does that make any difference in terms of of how you go about doing what you do? Well, there's a huge huge shift. You know, I, we all see it. We all know. Um, what's going on in the industry. Here's how I look at the the comic strip newspaper world. It's sort of, I compare it to network television, okay, which 
which is sort of being overshadowed now by all the streaming services going on. And, and there are a lot of great comic strips that are being launched now, that are being launched online with no, no, there's no FCC standing over them. You can't say that, you can't say that, you can't say that. So in, in some ways, comic strip newspaper, newspaper comic strip creators are sort of, the sort of the network TV shows, as opposed to all the the racier content which is published online these days. Um, I, I have to say that I don't know where the business is going to be with newspapers and comics in ten, fifteen, twenty years. I mean, I, they're still relevant. Uh, we're holding our own as far as number of papers. We're not losing, you know, very many at all. So, but but. Uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Bill Watterson, when Calvin and Hobbes, you know, 20, 25 years ago, he was talking about newspapers and the problems they were having. And even back then, he saw it, what, what was coming. So it's slowly and gradually changing. I won't say we're going to be irrelevant in 10 years, but uh, I think we're looking at a different environment in which we're working. Well, fortunately, there's all kinds of ways to uh, access uh, the brilliant mind of Edison Lee, including, of course, just picking up a copy of the Kenosha News. But otherwise, uh, going online, it is possible uh, to, in a sense, subscribe directly through the website. And I forget what that website is. Well, you can go to Comics Kingdom. That's right. It's WW Comics Kingdom. That's King Features runs that site and you can get it daily uh delivered to your mailbox it's really a great great service and it only costs like i don't know if it, you can get as many comics as you want you can go load everything up i think king you know handles about 50 something properties you can load them all up and get them all in your email box every single day for i think 19 dollars a year um and we all need the, yeah. yeah you can also go to the edisonlee.net website you know, I have books available, and you can go and check out that, that website. So there's there's several places to go. Well, we all need reasons to smile uh, these <laughs> days, and uh, one of the best is to seek out the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. John Hambrock, congrats on the reaching the 15-year mark. That is a great accomplishment, and uh, it's been so fun to follow your progress over the years, and I appreciate you joining me today on The Morning Show to give us an update on the brilliant mind of Edison Lee. Best wishes to you. Thank you, Greg. Thanks so much. And, you know, let's, let's do 25, shall we? <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> Thanks again.